This is episode 97 with Dr. Bridie O'Donnell. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on Your Impactful Journey. Dr. Bridie O'Donnell is a medical doctor with an interest in sports and exercise medicine. She's a world record holder in track cycling that we speak about in this episode and a champion for many different road cycling events. She's a seven-time national rowing champion, completed the Hawaiian Ironman and now works as the head for the Office for Women in Sport and Recreation in Victoria. In this episode, we discuss our connection through my man crush and the man that she'd rejected when she was 17 years old. (laughs) We discuss how persistence is different to stubbornness and why it's her most powerful personal attribute, how hippie parents helped her establish a holistic perspective, even as a medical doctor. We discuss the importance of more opportunity and greater inclusiveness for women in sport and rec, why the word, sorry, why the words should and shouldn't trigger blame and guilt within us. We talk about inequality in sport, business, and the medical world, and we dive into powerful mindset tips to help navigate life, and we go into so much more. You're really going to get a lot out of this. I thoroughly enjoyed this chat with Bridie, and I could have spoken to her for hours on so many of the areas that we covered. She's such a relatable legend and has seen some horrendous things in her career in the medical world. She's done her time working in very remote areas of Australia, saving lives. She gave up her career as a doctor to chase her dreams to be an elite athlete and make the Olympics, in which she, quote unquote, failed. She's moved into government with a non-political agenda and a deeper why for making change and her whole ethos determination, courage, and passion is infectious. Now, in this chat, Bridie mentioned a book that has been influential for her just recently. And I didn't go back to it while we were speaking, but I texted her afterwards so I could share it with you all. And it's called The Courage to Be Disliked, the Japanese phenomenon that shows that shows you how to free yourself, change your life, and achieve real happiness. So I've linked it in the show notes for you too because I downloaded it after she sent it to me. I downloaded the audio book and I'm almost finished listening to it since recording this episode with Bridie. It just resonates so closely with my beliefs and teaching philosophies and it's an easy book to engage with and learn from because it's from the perspective of a student asking questions to his mentor. So I'm loving it. Ah, Got to love Japanese philosophy, hey? Now, before we hear from Dr. Bridie, I want to take a minute to read an iTunes review. And this specific one, I've been sitting on it for quite a while. And it was written back in July. But I feel that this episode with Bridie is the perfect one to read this one out. Actually, I should have read it out to Bridie during the episode when we're having a chat and discussing my bubble of a perspective around derogatory and disrespectful remarks and inequality. So that'll make sense when you when you listen to this episode. But this one, this specific iTunes review, it's called A Dose of Optimism and Challenge. And it's from Journey of a Lifetime. It says, This podcast is full of great knowledge, but also makes you think about what actions you could implement to make positive changes in your life. I've tried to get my friends to listen and many are put off by his description of women as females. But I don't think he means it in a negative way. He just genuinely thinks of women as completely different from himself. And he's from the country, so his terminology is a bit out of date. (laughs) Some of the guests are a bit airy-fairy and 
We'll recommend against science-based medicine, but there are some genuinely good things you can add to your life toolkit and no one so far has mentioned homeopathy. I found his lack of intellectual guests a bit challenging. They all talk about seeking perfection, but never in the intellectual or musical arena. It's all about sports or startup business, so it's hard to relate if you're a professional. This guy really wants to help people get the most out of their life, and his background in sports, sorry, his background is sport, so his examples are mostly in that space. Definitely worth a look through, and I haven't missed an episode. <laughs> what a roller coaster of a review. Journey of a lifetime. I'm honestly grateful for that feedback. Credit to you for listening through, even though you're offended by the lack of musicians and homeopaths and the use of the term female instead of women. And I actually make no apologies because offense is a perception. And as you've noted, everything I do and say on this podcast is from a place of love and for the value of the listener. But your feedback is definitely received and I just ask you to please connect with me or recommend some musicians who can inspire us. And actually just thinking about it, since you wrote this review, we've had Nick Broadhurst on who's a a musician and he blew us away with his insights and perspectives of the world. Actually, I've had some great feedback and discussions just around that episode with Nick. So I'd love to hear from some more of them and and musicians and share their value and perspectives of the world. I'm fully intrigued and inspired by musicians for sure. I've got a few on my list that I've been speaking about wanting to get on for a long time. So if anyone listening can get me in touch with Jimmy Barnes, he has an incredible story that we can all learn from. Or Delta Goodrum would be fantastic. She's an inspiring woman with with epic battles that she's had on her journey that we can all learn from. But I just want to say, journey of a lifetime, if you're listening, please share this episode with your friends who were put off by me saying females, and hopefully you don't think that this guest is a bit airy-fairy, but thank you for taking the time and effort to provide the constructive criticism, because as always, it truly helps me continue to make this podcast more valuable for the listeners. Now, we'll hear from Bridie very shortly, but before we do, just a quick reminder that you can join our private Facebook group for the podcasting community. It's a great, safe, sharing community that that I've created for you like-minded legends to connect. But I've also been jumping on and doing live videos and giving value around breathing techniques and mindset tips and anything that you guys have been asking in the group. We've also been sharing morning routines. People have been asking about other people's morning routines and other powerful processes that we can all learn from each other. And that's the whole idea of the group. So you can post things that you've learned or questions that you want to learn more about and we'll address them. I've also asked this community for their help with who they'd love to hear from on the podcast for next year. Well, from now on, really. And there's been some great suggestions thrown in and I've already reached out to some of them. So if you're keen to have a bit more connection to this podcast journey, then just jump onto Facebook uh, in the group section and search for Your Life of Impact podcast community. And then voila, you're in. There's no expectations from you and I don't bombard you every day. I just drop in and out now and again uh, and you can do the same. Just drop in and out when you desire. Okay, now let's hear from one of the most active, passionate, and impactful doctors I know, Dr. Bridie O'Donnell. So, Bridie, I'm just going to let you on a little secret here. I, I have a couple of man crushes, and one of them is with a man who I believed asked you out on a date many moons ago, and that's <laughs> Bernard Fanning. <laughs> <laughs> That is a true story. He probably wouldn't remember though because we I was 17, he was probably a year older and they just played a gig um, 
at in Spring Hill uh, when their band had just started, and I thought, who's this greasy-haired dude in some band, as if they're ever going to make anything of themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know him very well. I knew John Coggle because my family and his family grew up together on the Sunshine Coast, um, and, you know, Bernard went on to be one of the most iconic singer-songwriters this country has ever produced, and I'm the biggest idiot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one for the record books. And for everyone <laughs> yeah. listening, Bernard is the lead singer of my favourite band, Powderfinger. So you can understand why I started this chat with wanting to know more about my man crush asking Bridie <laughs> Absolutely. <on> a <laughs> uh, brilliant. Now, Bridie, before we hear more about your journey, I just want to say welcome to your life of impact. Thank you. It's so good to be here. I really um, love the work that you do, Robert. So thank you. Thank you. And we've actually been connected by a mutual friend, Osher Ginsberg. I don't know if you've listened to um, many or all of his podcasts and um, he's had some pretty fascinating guests on and I, I think um, I'm a big admirer of his and we've known each other from high school um, and obviously his career has had so many extraordinary twists and turns um, and he's just published a book so it's pretty cool that um, he's been the, the way to get us together. Yeah, absolutely. I've been on Osher's podcast and I had him on here and I've listened to his audio book and highly recommended it to so many people. It's very, his story is quite intriguing and very inspiring in many mm. different ways. Mm. Absolutely. So, Brody, you're a medical doctor and you've been a professional athlete and we're going to talk a bit about that as we move forward. So, you've been fit and presumably healthy as a professional person, a professional athlete. Uh, you've completed marathons and Ironman races. But what I'm intrigued about is your views about Western medicine in terms of health and well-being and the pharmaceutical approach to wellness, for example? That's a really good question. I think um, when you grow up, uh, I grew up with parents that were pretty hippie-ish. We lived kind of off the grid um, on the, the western side of the Blackall Range um, in the Obi Valley. We had no electricity for the first 12, 13 years of my life. And so no TV. Um, Dad built our house out of mud bricks. And, um, you know, most of our neighbours were growing dope and getting busted by the police. My parents weren't dope growers, just for the record. Um, my dad's a primary school teacher and my mum was a social worker. So my sister and I had this kind of idyllic childhood um, with space and time and just making our own fun. And um, But I definitely had a passion for science and for evidence and information and was a big STEM sort of student and did very well in maths and science and always wanted to do medicine. And one of the things that medical education um is probably only starting to get better at now is to be more broad and be more inclusive around the ways to do things. But certainly when I was at med school in the 90s, everything was based on textbooks around facts and um, your delivery of information as a doctor um, and the way that we educate, and I'm putting that in inverted commas, community and our patients was very prescriptive, very one way, um, not collaborative and really based on that idea that you come to me, you've got a problem, I'm very intelligent, I will now tell you what those solutions could be and you take my advice or not. You know, and so I think that um, as a junior doctor and working within that system, um, you you give patients information. Well, if you didn't do this, you wouldn't be fat, you wouldn't have diabetes, you wouldn't have cancer. Here are the prevention steps. You should go and embrace them or now that you can't prevent it, here are your um, medications that you need to take. And we definitely as junior doctors didn't have an open mind about the way things could get managed. And did that expand for you? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it really did because um, for a variety of reasons. Number one was I did become an athlete around sort of third, fourth year med school. I started um, doing triathlon and became much more interested in how my body worked and really interested in exercise physiology. Um, But what you found was that people would get injured in different ways, even though you would all do the same training, um, that the same management plans didn't work for everyone. So it was the first time I realised that, There isn't just one type of science and there isn't just one way to fix things. And then I think as I got older and um, started to have relatives that would have cancer, um, when I came back after racing in Europe and got a job um, as a behaviour change physician at a hospital here in Melbourne, um, so much of my work was um, informed by being a much better doctor and I learned that by being a med school teacher at med school. So I started teaching at Deakin Uni Med School and for the first time ever we were teaching patients teaching young doctors to say things like, um, 
What other things have you tried to help this? Do they work? Do they not? When you have acupuncture, does that augment what you're already doing with your blood pressure medication? So junior doctors are being taught to recognise that patients have other strategies, that the community is embracing different ways of managing pain and illness and injury and, and food intolerances that we need to embrace um, and that they can augment them. But you also need to be able to say, if you're an oncologist, hey, mate, you've got this kind of cancer. We can give you chemo. We don't know how the chemo is going to interact with your naturopathic medicines, but if you want to use them, you you're you know you're an autonomous person. You need to make these choices um, and take responsibility for them, and give me the doctor the feedback on how you're going, so I can work with you. There is absolutely no point in being closed-minded about this stuff for people. I think with the big conditions like cancer that you spoke of, and when people need to go through chemo and things like that, there's obviously a really big need for. Um, Western intervention, but what about what's your thoughts on how we're doing as a society in terms of general health and well-being? When we look at things like blood pressure and heart problems and a lot of other illnesses and diseases around general health and well-being, what's your kind of views on that? Um, I think we're doing very poorly, and and even your the way you framed that to sort of say really big diseases like cancer. What I think is fascinating about cancer is firstly um, how frequently we all generalise about it as though it's one type of illness. When in fact, um, not only is it not just one type of cancer, but even everyone, every woman you ever knew who has ever had breast cancer has had a different cancer from the other women who've had breast cancer. So the ways that we get cancer, the why that we get it, uh, the how it manifests in our body, and then how how it responds to treatment is different in absolutely every single person. That's point number one. And the second thing is that 70% of chronic illness in Australia is preventable. It is all attributable to our poor lifestyle, our lack of physical activity, our mental um, lack of well-being, our lack of sleep, our screen time, our crappy amount of not not enough fibre, processed foods. So um, we are not dying of, of um, rare things anymore. We're not dying of smallpox and we're not dying of dysentery, uh, but we're dying of things like not, being, not moving our bodies enough, not eating well, not having good health literacy and not having good physical literacy, like what should I do with my body and why would I do that? So when you're an athlete and you have medical knowledge, you have this unique perspective and you think everyone else knows like don't eat spaghetti every night <laughs> unless you're doing the marathon. But then you realise actually going to the homes of lots of people and they've been overeating carbohydrates for 30 years since we all started being fearful of fat mm. back in the 80s. And that was thanks to the sugar industry in the United States. So we've got a whole two now generations of people who've been overeating in response to what they felt was the right thing to do to eat low-fat diet. So with your role back to what you said before around behaviour change physician, is that kind of what you're getting at there where it is that holistic education and what you're talking about now? Yeah, absolutely. So not only was it behaviour changes in how do I get a patient, a person in the community with either heading toward preventable diseases like type 2 diabetes, um, breast cancer risk, bowel cancer risk, etc., or heart disease, or they've already got some of those issues. They've already had a heart attack. They've already got, they're already obese, etc. And I'm there saying, okay, Frank, let's look at your lifestyle. Let's look at your diet. Let's look at your marriage, your kids, your job, how much you travel. What's your sleep like? I had this luxury um, in this job of having two hours with every patient. They would then go and have some testing the next couple of days, and then they'd come back to me and I'd have all of these results. And we all know that people are much more inclined to change their behavior when they're getting multiple check-in points with someone who is motivated to support them. And so not only did I learn to be more collaborative with patients by being a, a teacher of med school. But also I learned to be a better doctor by being, by experiencing life and having hardship and you develop more empathy. So you can sit across from a person and even if he's a millionaire bank manager, bank CEO, um, who comes across like a guy who's got everything he needs, actually inside that guy is a bloke who's been married twice, who doesn't think he's great at relationships, whose kids don't talk to him, whose staff are fearful of him, who earns $15 million a year. But doesn't have any intimate relationships. And so, so much of my work ended up being about lifestyle, psychology, mental health, mindfulness, and reminding people that they are good. That's the motivational interviewing part. How can I remind you that you're a good person so that instead of you saying, oh, I'm, I'm really shit at diet, so forget it. I'll just eat what I want because I'm crap at that. Or I used to try and exercise. I used to be in good shape. Now I'm a fat bastard, so forget it. It's all, it's all done. 
you know, instead of saying, actually, I need to treat myself better. I could be kinder to myself. I can make this, it's, you know, losing 20 kilos might take me two years, but I can do it. I love that philosophy that you come at and that example you gave of, you know, the millionaire and not having one ear, one key area of life on track, but the others falling away. Mm. I've, I've sort of come to realize that part of my role as a holistic health coach and in that space I was only saying it the other day, I've just sort of realized that my main role now is to teach people how to be human again and mm. because we live in a world where there's so many electronic distractions and we live, we sit for many hours a day in front of a computer where we're designed to move. We're indoors under bright lights when we're actually physiologically adaptive to sunlight and make that makes us feel better and being in nature and uh, mm. you know, we're all born breathing but how many of us are breathing efficiently and so, you know, with my breath work and coherence breathing and things like that and I realised, you know, I used to say to people, let's not wait for the tsunami in your life. Like you know, as an athlete, you do, you prepare rather than being reactive and, mm. and then... Uh, in life, too often we see people going for that reactive approach. Mm. One of the things, um, I've got this beautiful rescue greyhound that I take out for a walk multiple times. Well, she goes out running at 6K an hour and then we come back inside. She lies down for 20 hours. <laughs> um, but I ran into a guy I know um, walking his dog in the park and he's a, a retired professional ballet dancer and he's now working in another job. And one of the things we both had in common was we realised that when you're an athlete, one of the things that sets you apart from a civilian is that you're constantly seeking feedback and you're constantly given feedback. And most of the time the feedback is negative, which is this is not enough, you're not strong enough, fast enough, you need to be better, you need to try harder, this needs to look better, whatever it is. So it's brutal, but you actually start seeking it. It helps you perform. So, And I definitely, as an athlete, whatever athlete I was, rower, triathlete, cyclist, constantly measuring things, okay, that's not as good as last week, you know, you're testing yourself all the time. And so one of the things he said to me is he's become a tradie and he said, I go to work, I'm learning how to be a builder, and no one's given me feedback on anything. And no one's saying, good job, mate, or, yeah, that needs to be, if you want to make that perfect, you should do it this way. And so I realised that um, with no disrespect to some of my colleagues in this new job that I have, that I've had for a year, I'm working in government, but some of those stereotypes about people who work in DHHS in Victoria are true, which is there are people who are doing jobs and you wonder, why do you, what are you doing? What drives you? Why are you here every day? You work in sport and rec. That's a pretty cool job. But why do you seem to just have this apathy surrounding you that, or, or you don't like your job, but you're doing nothing to change it, or you don't like your body and you're doing nothing to get fitter or whatever it is. Mm. And I realized that the thing that makes athletes be so great at what they do is that they are still, no matter how hard it is, they are still always trying to do it better. And there are some people out there not like that. And I've got to reconcile myself to that, that, you know, I've got relatives or friends that say, that's nice, but I don't need you to try and fix me and I don't need you to try and help me be better. Um, and that's a hard one, I think, to deal with. Absolutely. And like you said, it's that big why. It's once people attach to their why and then they want results when they're really mm. attached to that. Totally. So you've mentioned athlete there a few times. You were a professional road cyclist and you had a career in that. And you're also a world record holder on the track. I've heard you speaking about that. Can you tell us about that? But not just about the epic physical feat that it was, but what did it actually take for you to get there on that day to attempt the world record, let alone to achieve it? I had felt when I was cycling, um, when I'd done all of the other sports that had led me to road cycling, firstly, that I found the sport that was really great for me. I felt it was suited to me at the time in my life. But there were other factors that worked against me. Like I do not recommend trying to be a pro cyclist in your th late 30s and 40s. It's just bloody hard. It's brutal. And and you, you're sleeping in a bunk bed and you're making no money and you're just being treated like a moron. And you, your tolerance for that is different than if you were 19. Um, so from my perspective, after I stopped doing that for five years and came back and was racing here in Australia for four years and managing a team, I still felt like there was something extraordinary that I wanted to do. Like I'd wanted to be an Olympic gold medalist. I'd wanted to be a world champion and wear rainbow jerseys all year to celebrate that. And I hadn't. And I, I found from my perspective that this was an event, the World Hour Record was an event that I felt completely suited me in that it was a physical test, but it was also an enormous mental test. And it required 
a real commitment to learning a process, learning technical skills, learning how to ride a track bike, choosing equipment. So in many ways, it was like the ultimate science project because I had to do a lot of homework, research, find people who knew their stuff and get them to help, get them on board and get them to help me. So it was this sort of nearly year-long assignment, if you like, which was going to culminate in all of these people who were smart and talented and motivated in helping me then have to spin the pedals for 60 minutes on a designated day in front of officials, commissaires and live stream to a few million people all over the world. So from my perspective, um, I just treated it like anything else. It was like med school exams. It was like preparing for the Ironman that some sessions are awesome, some sessions are just rubbish and you think, oh, crap. And then as you start approaching that deadline, you're getting more and more accomplished. You're feeling more and more confident. Uh, everything you're doing is aligning with what you need because you've got the right people around you. Um, but that being said, it wasn't all like this perfect preparation. There were heaps of hurdles along the way and even five, six weeks beforehand, um, I did like a bit of a test run, a 45-minute run, because I wasn't going to do an hour, a whole hour as a prep beforehand because it's goddamn painful and you, <laughs> you wouldn't put your hand up to do it. So, um, But we wanted to replicate some of the pre preparation, et cetera, and it was just a – it was a disaster. I mean, I felt like it was a disaster. As it turned out later, it wasn't a total disaster, but it was a really amazing lesson in – mindfulness and in and how when you as an athlete or anyone when you're doing something difficult once you start telling yourself it's not working holy crap that is a very powerful negative mindset that then actually starts reinforcing itself and you become shit so can you elaborate from that situation what actually happened what made you feel like it was a disaster when you talk about mindset there so um, I went to the velodrome here in Melbourne where I trained all the time and the plan was it was all very scripted out like we're going to script, you know, run it like I would for the world record, but just ride 45 minutes. But my coach wasn't there. He had, he was racing elsewhere. And so his assistant guy who worked with him was going to help me out. And with the hour record, you need a person on that line, the way they are um, during the pursuit on a velodrome to hold up a board or a, an iPad with a split to give you feedback to sort of saying, yes, you're on track. No, you need to give it a bit more or back off a little bit because the hour record, you have one gear, no brakes, your leg speed, how your cadence is the thing determining how fast the bike goes. And if you go too hard in the first 15 minutes, you, you've got nowhere to go from there. You could fall apart which we saw Jack Bobridge do famously the year earlier, world record holder in the individual pursuit, and he went out at bloody 60K an hour and it all just hit the wheels fell off and it was terrible to watch. I mean, incredibly, he finished the hour, but it looked like someone had shot him. Um, so I had planned to do it this way, and what was really interesting is that this guy, the assistant coach, just started getting giving me this really bad feedback. Like his face, he was looking grumpy. He looked agitated. He was sort of using his arms to like hurry up like as though it was wrong. So I then started thinking, wow, I must be really really off pace here. And then, so from a presumption or an assumption, I start then thinking, ah, oh, my legs don't feel that good, you know, and then I start thinking, bloody hell, it's hot, it's too hot in here. This is stupid. I shouldn't have done this. So a lot of shouldn'ts, which as we know in any in any industry, it's really unhelpful because once you start saying should or shouldn't, all you do is feel guilty or you start attributing blame or you're trying to find a reason why when really – I was not going to pull the pin on this session, so I should have just blocked that stuff out, but I wasn't able to. So then I started focusing on sweat running down my face. I started focusing on how uncomfortable I was on the saddle, how my legs felt like shit. I was pissed off that he was giving me bad feedback. Anyway, at the end of this 45 minutes, I got off the bike. I looked at the data. He looked cranky. My boyfriend and I went back home, and then I downloaded the data, and I looked at it, and I thought, you know what? That was like 150 metres off world record pace. So what the hell? Why was this guy giving me these this feedback? And it was such a great lesson in how actually I hadn't have been feeling that bad until he started saying to me, this is really bad. And so I found out later it's because he had a ridiculous aspiration about what we were going to achieve on the test day so that he could impress his boss and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so I talked to the sports psych about this and he was brilliant. And he said to me, you know, if you get to the day of the hour and you feel amazing, are you going to go harder? in the first 15 minutes above above your schedule um, to try and be faster. And I said, no way. I would not never do that in the first 15 minutes. And he said, right, right. What about if you feel terrible? You're just going to get off, stop? I said, no way. He said, right, so how you feel actually is going to have no consequence on anything. 
Ah, brilliant. Which is such a powerful thing because any when you're an athlete, particularly when you're a bike rider, you're constantly queuing into how do I feel? Yeah, yeah. Should I attack? No, I'll wait for the next lap till I feel really good. You're constantly talking about feelings. Do my legs feel good? Did I feel right? Was it? Did I feel motivated? And then you realize actually sometimes you just got to do shit no matter what. No matter how bad you feel, you've got to get up and go to work every day. Mm. No matter how low you feel or no matter how frustrated you feel at your partner, you're still married to them. you still got to engage with them and help them and be a good, kind, supportive partner. So I realized that I was being way too self-absorbed, which is pretty easy when you're doing an hour record and you can't talk to anyone and you're just in your own head for an hour. So we, we devised this whole script about how I was going to keep coming back to some words, some cues that I would think about every every lap and about leaning in and about my leg speed and about um, crunching my shoulders and keeping my head down. And by the time we got to the night of the hour, like I, it was just the most – amazing thing I've ever performed. So yeah, I broke the world record, but I'm actually more proud of the fact that for 60 minutes I was in the most mindful flow state where I just felt blissful and I could have pedaled like that forever. So the whole time you felt that way, you didn't have those thoughts and feelings that had crept no. in in the 45-minute time trial? No, because I'd even practiced this whole speech. I'd listened mm. to it. We, we, we made a script, you know, and so he would say, and as you know, with mindfulness, it's all about you just notice those feelings and then you just put them over there. So he said, you know, what are you going to – sweat's running down your face into your eyes and you go, oh, that's interesting, back to my legs. Mm-hmm. Or my ass feels like it's on fire, that's interesting, get back to leaning in and putting my head down, you know, so that I was constantly thinking about the technical things or the positional because, as you know, it's all about aerodynamics. How do I make myself as aerodynamic, compact and powerful as possible? There was a point at about 15 minutes to go, I I was feeling great and I thought I really want to break 47 kilometres. So I thought, okay, let's go legs. Let's get one more RPM out of this um, permit. Revolution per minute to see if I can increase the speed to go 47k an hour. <laughs> My legs went, uh, no, I think we're okay. <laughs> but it was amazing to look at the data later. I literally rode 189 laps of the velodrome between 18.8 and 18.9 seconds. So the variation of those laps was 0.1 of a second for a whole hour. Like I was a metronome. Wow. Yeah, metronome. I was just going to say that's consistency. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> That mindset aspect that you spoke about, that's such a good learning curve for everyone listening, regardless of whether you are into sport or not, because it's that whole thing I I teach around emotional intelligence and around that space of metacognition where, you know, it's sort of that next level of awareness. You know, we need to think about our thinking. We need to be aware of our awareness. We need to know what our emotional states and our energetic conditions are, but it's not to get caught up on them. Mm, it's, it's totally. To understand are they helpful or are they hindering us at that point? And then come back to what the sports psych and you, the, the plan that you had made is what's the focus point? Because your mind is going to go crazy and it's going to tell you some stuff and challenge you, but then you have a focus point to bring you back to what actually matters in that moment to not believe that story that, that does get created in your mind. Mm, mm. That's brilliant. Well, congratulations for uh, getting through that and and being a world record holder. That's brilliant. Oh, thanks. And just a little bit more on that mindset and resilience because every sport you've done, you know, you, you mentioned the Ironman there, uh, you you do cycling. They're, the dedication of time and effort to, to be the best at it and not just be a participant, it's quite mammoth. And I'm always super intrigued with people's mindsets and beliefs regardless of their achievements. So what else do you believe have been your greatest assets in your life that have allowed you to build confidence and resilience in all aspects, so not just in the sporting realm? I think that um, I'm incredibly persistent so, and I think that's different from stubborn. I don't, I don't keep doing things that cause pain or harm or um, that I'm shit at, but <laughs> I persist at things that I want to be really good at, that I am good at, that I want to be great at. Um, I do, I'm not de- easily deterred. And perhaps that comes from early life of um, whatever sport. I was certainly a completely mediocre athlete as a, as a young kid. And I actually think that was one of my other assets is that um, I was very fortunate to be born to really good, kind parents who said things like, do your best and be a good person. So my dad would take me to whatever sport I would want to be good at, which were all team sports at the time, and I was completely hopeless at touch footy and netball. Um 
and I would try and I would want to be in the A team and I would be the captain of the C team and I would be hopeless and parents would yell and say, fucking number 11's no good. And dad would say, that's my daughter, number 11. <laughs> um, so I, I showed effort and commitment and I was a tryhard, but I had no talent, no natural talent. And that I think what when you're ambitious and you have no natural talent, what that means is you work harder. Um, and I'm reading that amazing book, um, The Courage to Be Disliked by Chiro Kashimi, that um, book about changing, you know, freeing yourself to change your life and achieve real happiness. It's such a cool book. And one of the things they talk about is inferiority, thoughts of inferiority versus inferiority complex. And I absolutely have thoughts of inferiority all the time, but I don't have an inferiority complex. I don't think I'm inferior, but I want to be better at everything that I do than I am right now. So I think it's a hunger as well. I think I'm incredibly ambitious and I like winning and winning makes me feel good because I want to be on the top of the podium or I want to be the smartest kid in the maths class and I want to win maths <laughs> because I want to be the best. So that's part about showing off or getting attention, but my way of getting attention is a way that is measurable um, because I was never going to be the most beautiful girl or the the person with the shiniest hair or I didn't have anything natural about me that was – attractive, I think I created a lot of my own uh, assets and talents around that. And then I think probably another one I acquired as an adult was um, just greater courage. I think becoming a bike rider, quitting my job to do something and seeking Olympic selection and not getting it actually taught me enormous courage. And they, they talk about courage as feeling the fear but doing it anyway. I'm fearful of things all the time. I, I've, I'm fearful of being embarrassed. I'm feel, fearful of looking stupid. But it doesn't actually stop me from doing it. And I wish, particularly with women around being active and sporty, I wish they would do that more because men seem to do that a lot better. They, they can run out on a cricket pitch and fat and unfit and they still do it. They don't care. Mm. And women focus a lot on I don't, I'm not going to do it unless I'm awesome at it. And I'm going to be awesome at it straight away. And then if I'm not, forget it. Let's let's talk about women in sport and your role now with the Victorian government because you're working uh, in the Office for Women in Sport and Recreation. And you mentioned there that, you know, you come across people that aren't fully attached to their why. So tell me why this move into the career and how is it panning out for you? What's your experience like moving into government? The move came um, when I saw the job being advertised. Someone brought it to my attention just over a year ago and I applied and went through this very long interview process and was given the job in November. So I'm actually celebrating one year in the job today. And oh, congratulations. Happy <laughs> anniversary. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, it's just been a dream ride. Um, but I think that from my perspective, the way the job was um, described was uh, that this government was absolutely motivated to address inequality for girls and women in sport and rec in this state by funding more facilities, by having board quotas, by having more opportunities for women and girls to lead in sport and for driving participation whatever that looks like, whether or not that means you're going to be Elise Perry and be the, one of the best cricketers in the country or be Sam Kerr or if you're just going to be Jenny Smith, single mother of three, who wants to start playing netball again. And from my perspective as a health practitioner, um, as a woman in her 40s who has way too many friends and family who are unfit and feel isolated or alienated from the sort of formal way that sport is delivered in Australia – which is a bit traditionally a bit of a macho culture. Um, and as an athlete who experienced terrible, um, you know, sexual harassment and financial abuse and emotional abuse in professional cycling teams, I just thought, wow, what an opportunity to be an advocate for the voices of girls and women that don't get a voice, uh, to share my lived experience and help drive change. And, uh, and I think, too, um, selfishly, to say, could I have an impact that isn't just about one-on-one -on -one patients X number of times a week and maybe change or save a life a year? What if I could impact millions of girls and women in this state, meaning that no more daughters are going to show up to footy clubs and cricket clubs and get called lesbian, go home, or have um, be um, not have anywhere to change and um, have toilets and safe facilities, or never have a CEO or a president of a club be a woman ever again? And that, of course, um, we're in this amazing time of change, I think, an acceleration of the profile of some of our 
high-profile women in sport in Australia. But it's still not enough. I mean, you can still look at mainstream media representation of sport. If you look at the back pages of The Age or the Sydney Morning Herald, um, there are still between 80 and 90% of stories are around men. And in fact, in Victoria, more stories about horse racing than there are about women. So even when the Matildas are winning and even when the Southern Stars are winning, we're still printing the same crap. And then you go to regional uh, cricket, football, netball, etc., clubs and, and community sport and the way that those sports are run. And not only are they filled with pale, male and stale faces, but it's pale, male and stale attitudes, you know. So no one's – people aren't modernising the way they run sport. And for me, that this year has been mind-blowing in just understanding this really challenging paradox, which is community sport is run by incredibly passionate, motivated people with a big vested interest – Usually they don't get paid anything and therefore they are ridiculously holding on to power. Uh, they don't, they'd almost rather the club fail and them not be president than someone else be president. And I, I find it mind-blowing. Is that experience out of sport for you as well in terms of the, the pale male and stale aspects in certain areas? Definitely in surgery. When I when I got out of med school and I did my intern and residency in, in um, Brisbane, I really wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And I tell this story when I speak is that around 20 years ago, I was offered a training position on the orthopedic training program where they said to me, basically, you're all right. For a girl, you're all right. And we, we're willing to offer you a spot to do your four years of training to be an orthopedic surgeon. And so initially you think, wow, lucky me. And then you think, wow what does that say, you know, mm. that that because I'm tall, athletic, motivated, I'm not um, offended by their language and their jokes and you think, yeah, that's me trying to fit in. That's me trying to be like you. And then I thought, I don't want to hang out with these kind of guys, these knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. That's just a stereotype. But at the time it felt like that. So I didn't do orthopedic surgery and I didn't do surgery at all. Um, I love it. I love it. It's so satisfying. It's such an interesting job. Um, and then, you know, you see it in selection in Olympic sports. And 10 years ago, I was the best time trial athlete in this country and the fourth best cyclist in the country. And the Cycling Australia said, we're going to take nine men to the Beijing Olympics and we're going to take three women because if the men win a medal, it'll be worth more than mm. the women's medal. So the messages are there constantly, which is you're committing yourself every day, you're riding in the rain, you're getting sweaty, you're trying to lose weight, you're doing everything the boys are doing, oh, but what they do is more important because they're on TV because they do the Tour de France. And, they're, and I mean, in many ways, they're right. It's like saying, is the most high-profile NRL player more important than the most high-profile woman? Well, yeah, he is because people know his name and they don't know her name. But we need to change that. So we need to change the system so that female athletes, uh, female administrators and girls that show up to clubs in, you know, anywhere, Benalla, get a fair go. I know exactly what you're saying from a different perspective, not male to female, but I've worked in Paralympic sport my whole career and to know that some of the top athletes, you know, they train and dedicate their lives and every day of their life to, to being the best athlete as you know what it takes and then uh, these guys to be treated or disrespected in a way that doesn't, that people don't see that they're as oh, talented or as dedicated or committed as able-bodied athletes. Mm. It's, it's quite disheartening. Mm. If we go back to the what you were talking about before, and I, I don't know, Brody, am I just a naive country kid? I grew up in country New South Wales out in Cobar, but is it that I'm naive or I just don't get it or that my environments have never allowed me to experience any different feelings about this, but I, I don't personally think of a role in politics or coaching or teaching and then think about males or females being better suited or I don't think about what I want to do in life or who I want to be surrounded by to help make people better and then think about males and females. I don't think about my collaboration opportunities in business or who I want to speak to on the podcast and think about whether these people for these roles or responsibilities are male or female. It, it just seriously doesn't cross my mind and that's why mm. I'm intrigued to speak with people like you who are forward leading and, and like you said to be that voice and that advocate for women who don't have that voice so uh, yeah I don't know when I, I think about it from my perspective and I've mentioned on this podcast a few times that I've always been surrounded by strong female role models and mentors in my life and I've almost 
almost always seen women treated equally. And I'm talking about female family members, talking about I had a female coach when I was a professional athlete uh, at the AIS, uh, female colleagues and mentors and everything like that. So I'm really intrigued to hear things from your perspective around how those differences really manifest in a strong way. Um, I think what you've described in terms of your experience is actually almost like the the sort of gold standard of of how we want um, our generation, our, our children's generation, if you like, to grow up, which is to see varying genders doing varying jobs um, to see to have role models around you that are positive and so which is a wonderful thing and it, and it demonstrates as well then why you've chosen the jobs you have why you have the colleagues the relationships etc that you do have but what we do know um, and I'm fully supportive of that it sounds it does sound wonderful I think that what what we see though is unfortunately if we think about traditional sport in Australia, the sports that have received more attention, um, more income, more sponsorship and therefore have been elevated to a higher plane, their cricket, men's cricket, football, whether that's NRL or AFL or rugby union, motor racing um, and then maybe a bit further down tennis. And if you think about when the Australian Open decided to have equal prize money for men and women, all of the backlash came from men. And all of it came around the fact that men were playing five sets and women were playing three. And therefore, how on earth could you pay them the same? And so one of the things that I end up talking about a lot is not only unconscious bias, which, as you know, is something that when we we all have it in, in varying degrees. But when we survey 60-year-old populations and we say, can a woman be a president of a bank? What a surprise, 90% of people, both men and women, will go, ooh, well, I've never seen a woman be a president of a bank, and I don't know if she can, and maybe she's a bit emotional, so it could be a bit tricky. Um, they, there's a lot of extreme unconscious bias around rigid gender stereotypes in generations above yours and mine. We just held, held this awesome Girls in Sports Summit a couple of weeks ago where we got 100 girls together who are all aged 13 to 15, and we did this really cool, first-of-its-kind live polling where, we, where they all had iPads. We asked them questions about why they play sport, what they love about it, what's been hard, what does a leader look like, what do they want sport to look like. It was just awesome. And when we got them to talk about whether or not which roles had genders or descriptions of um, like adjectives, like assertive, aggressive, fast, mean, guess what? 13 to 15-year-old kids do not attribute those to gender at all. They all think that women can be fast and strong and they all think that men can be sensitive and kind. So they learn that stuff. They learn it in the same way that people learn to be racist and they learn to be homophobic and they learn to be um, to have judgments about what people can and can't do. They don't, they're not born that way. But if you're around a bloke, and this happens to me when I ride my bike, if you're around people that scream at cyclists and say cyclists should get off the road, if your dad's doing that and you're seven and you're in the back seat, you start thinking, yeah, cyclists shouldn't be on the road. Mm. So what we've seen in those traditional sports I listed earlier is that Generally, um, men have been paid to do it and women haven't. So women drop out like I did with cycling. You go get another job, you become an academic, you have kids and men can continue to get paid doing it. And then those men that retire from that game then go on to the board of Cricket Australia or they become the CEO or they become the head coach. And so what you're really perpetuating is a quite a small pool of people from, from which the next job is taken. And so when we've had this board quota that will come into effect by 1st of July next year and that the sports have had a three-year lead into this and we fund 120 sports in the Victorian government and we're at about 70% of the sports are at quota already. So they've got 40% of women on their board. They've had to find women. Uh, when men have left, they've had to appoint a woman intentionally. And the backlash coming from these sort of 10 or 15 organisations is stuff around merit, which is, oh, look, I, I don't get me wrong, I like women, I'm married to a woman, but... Just woman doesn't know how to be on a board of clay target shooting or doesn't know how to manage pistol shooting or women don't like this or we don't know any good women. One guy even said there are no women in Bendigo. And I said, oh, terrific. I'll have to make my way there if I'm looking for a boyfriend. But, like, <laughs> I just think that's he really believes that. He really believes that she wouldn't know what she's doing. And so what I was very gentle initially when I had this conversation saying, I understand, you know, change takes time. But now what I say to them is have a look around that t committee table or that board table or, and we're saying, seeing this in business as well, you know, in banks, etc. is did all those people get there on actual merit or did they get there because they were mates with the guy who's the chair 
or, you know, as the AFL, the organisation, all those guys went to school together, they played at the VAFA together, they know each other's wives. Like they're all, it's a little tiny tight circle of mates. So there's no gender equality at the AFL. They've got a lot of women working there, but they work in comms and marketing and membership. Mm. They're not up high around the exec table. It's interesting when you talk about, like you said, the traditional sports because I had a chat to my fiancé today when I was uh, getting ready for this chat with you and she was a professional athlete her whole career as a race walker. So mm. she was Swedish national champion and she was pretty much born into her because her mother was world champion back in the day a couple of times. And I asked about her experience uh, from this perspective in her sport and she said I feel like I've been pretty blessed to be honest because it hasn't been something that's been exposed in our sport and you know there's a lot of equality and treated the same and things like that there's always been the same prize money and the same opportunities um, in around that so I mean that's a blessing to hear but it's probably a rarity as well by the sounds of it. Well, I think that's what I love so much about not just Olympic athletes but the sports that they're in is that generally um, what we see is that the gender equality is not the issue. It's about whether or not you're going to win a medal. That's what Mm. decides if you're going to go to Olympics or Paralympics is, come on, sorry, mate, but these are the cutoffs. We're only going to send athletes that we think can win. And the gender's got very little to do with it. And as a rower and a triathlete, what I witnessed in those two Olympic sports was really – selection was brutal but the gender didn't come into it the way it did with some of these sports that are have been much more traditional and I think that um with no disrespect I think that part of your life experience has meant that you're actually around you're in a bit of a bubble and you're surrounded by really wonderful motivated people who do know their why and the thing I I think I'm encountering a lot more of is um fear and from my perspective, I think what change threatens in many is what might I lose rather than what could I gain. We see it when you're asking people to quit smoking. You see it when you're asking them to try and lose weight or drink less. But you're also seeing it when you're asking them to modernise their organisation or provide flexible work hours is they think, whoa, things are going to change if people are allowed to work from home and or I'm having a woman come on and she works part-time because she's got to pick up her kids how, what will my organisation look like? We were all people who'd be here till 8pm and slaving away and talking about how busy we were and then we go to the pub. Now you can't do that anymore. Now you can't tell racist jokes at work anymore. What does that mean for me? And I actually think it's about fear that for a lot of people, that's their identity of what their workplace looks like or what their sport looks like um, or what their business looks like. And they don't, they, they're so worried about what might happen by having by being inclusive, and they use these ridiculous expressions like it's gone political correctness gone mad. But if they were, if they had a kid who was trans, and they realised how transphobic some language is, they'd be outraged, and they'd suddenly have a new perspective on how important it is to be inclusive and to use pronouns that makes that person feel included, and not be uh, ignorant and bigoted. So that was I was going to ask the question. Look, I. I love your passion and your drive and I could talk to you all day about this variety. Well, obviously <laughs> time and uh, I don't know, maybe you're going to go and celebrate your one-year celebration, uh, sorry, anniversary of being in your job. I don't know what else you've got planned for your day but I've got a few questions that I ask all my guests and one of them is kind of in relation to what we're just talking about but what what do you believe is good action for people to take in their lives to be more impactful and I guess in relationship to what we're talking about, what can we do um, to, to help your cause and, and your drive and in your role of what you're achieving? Great question. Um, I think I'll answer it in two parts. And the first part is from a personal level. I think people, I would love for people to be, to feel safer to fail things to be safer, to be mediocre, to be average, to realise that they're not going to be awesome at it first go, whether or not that's a physical feat, a new job, a relationship, um, whatever it is, the dynamics and interactions in their life, they have to be prepared for them to just be a bit ordinary to start off with and to put their hand up and say, I don't know what I'm doing, can you help me? And that's the way we grow at anything. Otherwise, if we never risk anything because we're so worried about looking just mediocre, then we'll never grow at anything. Mm. And I've career change and being new at stuff has taught me that. It's taught me to be humble, but it's also showed me that people are amazing. When you ask them for help, they want to help you. People are fantastic. 
broadly, I think around selfishly from my perspective around my job, all I want people to think about is if they have two children, they want the opportunities for the both of the genders of those children or all genders of their children to be equal. And we're seeing more and more advertising around, you know, there's an ad recently of a, a dad with his two sons and a daughter in a car and the one kid says, oh, I got suspended for taking photos up a girl's skirt and the dad going, oh, is that all nothing? That doesn't mean anything. And the daughter in the back seat says, yeah, I'm just going to have to get used to being disrespected my whole life. And the dad kind of turns around and thinks, whoa, yeah, I'm giving her the wrong messages. So I think until we start learning the value of women in our society and realising that men in Australia too can work better at being more sensitive and in touch with not being good at stuff and manage their own masculine challenges um, because if we're to get dark about this, we're now seeing nearly 60 women who have been killed by an intimate partner or ex-partner in Australia this year alone. Now, that is because men have been left and they don't know how to cope with it. Men have been... Uh, you know, dropped, broken up with, uh, embarrassed, and their solution has been to kill someone. Now, that is the extension, the very dramatic and horrible, devastating extension of people experiencing change and having no ability to manage it. And we all lose things. We have loss and we have failures. And the better we get at acknowledging that, and like you said about mindfulness, the better we get at saying, okay, wow, that didn't work out. What should I do now? How can I be better? Should I change direction? Who do I seek advice from? Do I need to see a psychologist? Do I need to go to a doctor? Do I need to change my job? But having some self-reflection uh, will actually help everybody grow and be far more great in their contribution to society. Powerful. Very powerful. <laughs> Deep message right there. So before I ask the last few questions, how can I and the listeners uh, find you on on the internet, on social media, website, etc.? Um, so my social media is at Bridie underscore OD, Bridie O'Donnell, and I'm t- on Twitter and Instagram there and all the views there are my own, but they're generally very aligned with, you know, gender equality and women in sport and, you know, my greyhound, as I said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, my office, the Office of Women in Sport and Recreation, has a website called Change Our Game. At Change Our Game is our social media and changeourgame.vic.gov.au. And we're all about, um, as much as possible, broadcasting the achievements of women and girls in sport and recreation, um, content based around board quotas, connecting women to be on boards, uh, networking events, um, interviews with coaches, administrators, because it's not just around women being active and being involved in sport from a physical perspective. We want to see more women in leadership positions. So we, we find some of those women and interview them, um, have them, you know, the speeches that they've written be on the website, um, case studies, etc. So people can find out more about that on at Change Our Game. That's brilliant. I highly encourage everyone to to get around that because I want more people to live in the bubble that I live in. With the, <laughs> Me too. With the highly I'm influential uh, mentor, <laughs> female mentors. <laughs> awesome. Bridie, one of my top core values is giving and I give all my guests a gift for giving their time and value on the podcast. And I want to give you one of our charity teas from our Life Teas range. And what we did with these teas, we collaborated with a few high-performance athletes, Paralympic and able-bodied athletes, and helped them design a tea. They chose a charity that was close to their hearts, and we donate 100% of the profits to their chosen charities. And the shirt that I'm going to send to you is from Sarah Walsh, who's a Paralympic leg amputee who I was coaching for many years. And her campaign is around Dare to Stare uh, because her experience as a female leg amputee, she was getting a lot of stares and uh, it's been quite a, mm. <laughs> quite a strong and uh, impactful campaign. So I'm going to send you one of those shirts for, for the deeper meaning of it as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's fantastic. Now, before we finish off with the Fast Five and then I will definitely let you go, ha- is there anything else you want to say to the listeners or do you have any questions for me? <laughs> you shouldn't have said is there anything else I want to say I could have I could go on and on and on about all sorts of things um, move your body move it every day no matter what no matter how small five minutes take the stairs do some stretching be active move it, it your body will thank you be human mm. <laughs> brilliant okay so Fast five questions. Now, I haven't actually told you anything about these and I just want you to not really think about it too much, just let it roll off the tongue. So 
What's one habit you wish you could change? Irritatingly organised. <laughs> Probably got you AKA to AKA unspontaneous. Unspontaneous. <laughs> unspontaneous. What makes you feel absolutely pumped and exhilarated and energised? Uh, speaking to a room of 400 people um, about the stuff I'm passionate about and making them laugh and having engaging them for an hour. Nice. And I actually watched one of your uh, talks in on the internet today and you looked like you were having a great time doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever washed a dog? Yes, I don't recommend it. Of course. Do, does your greyhound need washing? There aren't they? No, she sick? doesn't. Yeah. She she refuses it. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Be brave and mighty forces will come to your aid. Mm. And what are you most grateful for in your life right now? My health, my physical, mental health. Bridie, you're a legend. You're an inspirational <laughs> role model, not just for women, but for all of us men too. And you show us why courage, persistence and determination are powerful and you ooze passion and loyalty. Keep shining your impactful light to the world. Thank you so much. It's been awesome to talk to you. There you go, legends. I trust you gained some value from Dr. Bridie. And if you're like me, you've finished wanting to spend much more time picking her brain. What a legend. Make sure you check out everything she's up to online. And I've linked her social media tags and her website uh, and even the website for the Change Our Game campaign. So get on board and support this movement and create yourself a bubble of inspiring female role models too. And be an inspiring role model, regardless of your gender. And if you are keen to learn more habits, tools and strategies to be the best role model that you can be by being your best self, check out our Mental Strength Training online program that you've heard me speak a lot about on this podcast at yourlifeofimpact.com forward slash coaching. And as always, if you have any questions at all, you can reach out to me personally from the website or via social media. And please do that because I love hearing from you guys. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.